So we're still in Matthew 6. So two weeks ago we did one verse, last week we did three, this week we'll do ten. How's that sound? Does that sound like a more reasonable pace to, more reasonable pace to go at? Uh, so go ahead and be turning to Matthew chapter 6. Um, I felt like it, it had been too long since I'd given you a movie reference. So I felt like I owed you some sort of movie reference, some sort of something, because I hadn't made too many movie metaphors in the last couple of weeks. And I know that I felt a distinct lack of movie metaphors, so I could only hope that, that you felt the same way. So, um, and I think the best, the best movie that I could use to kind of set up where I wanted, what we're going to talk about here, at least at the beginning, um, is one of, I think we would all probably agree, one of the greatest films ever produced in our lifetime. Um, so there's, it's, and, and I'll just kind of build up how it starts. So it starts with, with a guy who's, who's down on his luck. He hasn't ha- he has, his family's poor, and he's going to lose his house and all that, and he's going to talk to this person in great authority. And as he's walking up the steps to this important building that this person lives from, there's a guy hanging from a banner. And he says, why are you hanging there? And he said, I threw off the emperor's groove. He said, what? I said, I threw off the emperor's groove. You know, the groove, the rhythm in which he lives his life. I threw it off and the emperor had me thrown out the window. As a result, the emperor ends up being turned into a llama and it's, it's fantastic. There, there's comedy gold in there and there's lots of life lessons to be learned as well. But, but the whole premise of the emperor's new groove is that you have this guy who is so set in his ways, who's so set in making much of himself, bringing people's attention to himself, that all it takes is one uh, little old man to kind of bump him as he's walking by to throw him off completely. And he, and he gets really angry. You threw off my groove. I'm sorry, but you've thrown off the emperor's groove. I love that movie. It's so good. The religious elite... The, the Pharisees, these guys who were, who were seen as these, you know, people to look to for spirituality so that we could best know, you know, who it is that we should look to so we know how to live our lives. We're also, and, and, and all of Israel with them had become creatures of habit, creatures of routine. They had a groove that they were in. We do these things in this way, and the way we do these things is what's going to earn our favor with God. We, we continue to follow these rituals. We continue to do these things. And one of those things that they had fallen into, one of those patterns that they had adopted was one where they would pray certain times set throughout the day. Now, there's nothing... I'm, not, I'm obviously not knocking having a routine and having a structure in your life and maybe even setting up times where you're going you're gonna to step aside and pray. I'm not at all saying this is a bad thing. Some of us, including me, because I, I have to admit, I'm not a routine person. I'm not a structure person. I'm a I will wake up when I want to wake up kind of person. Unfortunately, that doesn't really work when you actually have like a real job and they actually want you to be there relatively close to on time. But I'm not a routine person. But, but Israel had become locked into a routine. At, at certain times throughout the day, uh, in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening, they would stop to pray, which is a good thing. Taking time to stop to pray was an important 
thing and is continuing to be an important thing. I think if we all decide we could build that into a routine, that would probably be okay. So I'm not saying that's a problem. The problem, like we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, is they were taking this routine and they were using the fact that they were able to hold to this strict structure of praying at any given moment to attract attention to themselves and make people, again, realize, oh man, they're so awesome. They are so good at this. They are so close to God. And they were receiving all of this fame from people because they were lit. When it says in a minute, when, Jesus, when we read this and Jesus says, praying in the synagogues or in the street corners. When he says in the street corners, he literally means that if you were walking to church and you were one minute later than you intended to be, and the moment struck where you're supposed to stop and pray, they would be walking down the street, they would stop and go, Oh God, I praise you, right there in the middle of the street. Why? Why do they do that right then? Because they want people to think, Oh look, they are so spiritual, they're going to stop even right there. And, 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 they're, and they're receiving all of this fame and this glory for how, how well they can obey these, these set routines. Again, because God didn't say, he didn't say, I want you to pray here, here, and here, and here, and here, and just like this. But, but they've developed these, these structures, these schedules, and they're holding the routine that they've put themselves in, this groove that they find themselves in. They're leaving themselves, they're, they're making that almost the law. They're, they're elevating that to the thing that's going to please God more. Not that they would talk to Him, but rather that they would follow the structure that they themselves had put together. So today we're going to see um, Jesus kind of tear apart some of the, the places in, in Israel's prayer lives that had kind of become corrupted. The parts that had kind of gotten murky. The parts that had been made to you know, elevate themselves. And then he's going to kind of replace that with, and here's the way that I want you to pray. Here's the heart that I want you to have when you talk to God. And so hopefully, by the time we get done today, we're not only going to have a clearer picture of who God is, but what he wants us to ask him about, the things he wants us to say to him when we pray. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 5 through 15. So again, this is Jesus still continuing this long period of teaching to this crowd that's gathered around him. And he's starting to give them some specific ways to counteract kind of the broken way that people were acting out their faith, living out their faith. And he says in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, 
There's a lot of things in there. And I've got, like, usually I'm like a, a two to maybe three points. I think I've got like six or seven today. So here we go. I've got four pages of notes. Last week was a page and a half. So just, just to give you some context of where we could be going. Who knows? Uh, so, so buckle up, and I hope you drank a lot of coffee. But not too much that you have to get up and leave. Amen. That's right. All right, so the first thing, we've already kind of established this, but prayer is not meant to attract attention to ourselves. Prayer is not meant to be something that we use to make much of ourselves. And you tend to think, I don't do that. I don't stand up in church and I don't, I don't, I don't walk outside and I don't pray so that people will see me pray. And that may be true. But I was thinking about this. How often when you Say you're just going to say a prayer by yourself, you're, in your, you're at your house, you're right about to eat or something, you're, you're sitting down, maybe you took a break at work and you're going to pray real quick right before you eat. What, what sorts of things do you say in your head right before you eat? Just, just to kind of think through, what are the kinds of things that I pray when I'm by myself? And then ask yourself, do I change the way that I talk? Do I change the types of words that I use when I pray and I know that other people are going to hear me? Does it become less laid back, less relaxed, less comfortable? Does it come, become more formal? Does it, do, you use, do you use the occasional word that you might not would use in normal conversation because you know that other people are listening to you pray and you want to make sure that they know that you know what you're talking about? I think this is a temptation that lots of us face to, to make sure when we pray that, that we're, we're over the top and, oh, well, I don't want to just pray like a quick little 15-second prayer. They might think that I don't know anything, so i got to make sure I stretch this thing out but not too long, because if I stretch it out too long, they're going to get tired of my prayer, and they're going to get bored. And we're making all this, we're focusing so much on what people are going to think about the way that we are praying, the way that we are supposedly talking to God. So he says, when you pray, don't make it about going and standing on the street corners. Don't make it about going and standing up in the middle of church and offering these big verbose prayers that people are going to think so highly of you because you can offer them. But instead, go into your room and speak to God in private. That's what he says. The irony of this whole thing is most people in Israel at this time would not have their own private room. Even if they lived with their family at the, at the house, it's not like they could go get away. Most of them were living in one-room homes. So there really wasn't a private room for them to go in to pray for. So what do you think Jesus could be talking about here if it's not, if it's not that everybody has their own room like we do, where it's like, oh, I'm going to go in my room and I'm going to close the door. I'm just going to go get away and hide for a little while. I think what Jesus is really referring to is that when he says, get, go into your inner room, is almost like a picture of, I'm, again, and you've probably heard us saying this for like the last two months. But I really want your heart to be in the right place when you come and you approach me. I don't want it to be about being seen. I want it to be about I'm communicating with God. So when he says, go into your inner room, I think he is also referring to make sure that, that your heart inside you, the, the, the part of you that is the most private and intimate place, that, like Make sure that that is in the right place. Go focus on your level of communication with me in your heart. Make sure that, that you, aren't, you aren't approaching this with bad intentions, with the wrong meaning. God continues to be, and Jesus continues to remind us, that God is after our hearts, not just, not just words. Like I just prayed before, like that when we sing, when we sing songs 
before and after the sermon or when we come back tonight and we'll sing a couple songs. or Whenever we sing, don't let those just be like empty words. Those are just words that are on a screen that sound really good. But instead, we want to be offering up words that are, that are born in our heart. They're, 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 they're the result of a heart that loves and is seeking after God. And that's why we sing these words that we sing. So God continues to want that in our prayer lives as well. This is supposed to be like an intimate, personal, like communion with our Creator. Prayer is meant for our hearts to connect with the heart of God. One thing that he's not saying is that every time you pray, it should be in private. Because if you listen to the prayer that he just says, he says, our Father, right? Like he doesn't just say, go get alone and then talk to God, you know, in singular terms. He's still using a corporate prayer word. He still says, when you pray, pray our Father. So he's still expecting that we as the church would all gather together and that there would be public prayer offered. This is a good thing. It's good that we can hear what's on each other's hearts. It's good that we can know how God is drawing us to him and the things that he's revealed to us as we pray. So he's not saying that we should be on our own. He's saying that we should be focused on focusing our hearts on him. So prayer is not to attract attention to ourselves. Secondly, prayer is not superstitious. He makes this reference to the Gentiles who, would worship, who were worshiping all of these different gods and, and speaking of routines that were a little, that could get out of hand um, many of these Gentile uh, religions were, would start maybe at like 8 in the morning, and then they would just repeat the same phrase over and over again for four or five hours. Like, how great is this God? 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 And they would do that on repeat for four or five hours during the day in the hopes that if they said these words that meant nothing inside of them enough, that their God would look on them in favor and that he would, he would, he would say, I'm going to bless you because you obviously showed me this dedication and, and you're committed to following and these sorts of things. And in a sense, they were kind of superstitiously approaching, approaching prayer, saying, if we just do this enough, if we just say these words as many times as we can, eventually it's going to stick and, and the God that we are praying to, whoever they thought that God was, whoever that was, is going to bless us, is going to answer our prayers. And what Jesus is saying is, I don't want this kind of incoherent babbling. What does it say in verse 7? For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Right? He's really using a word that basically translates into babbling. They're just, they're just saying, making sounds, making noises that have absolutely no meaning to them thinking that if they just do this one thing the right way, like, like if I just stand on my right foot and kind of tilt my head to the left and wave my right arm and then I pray, then God will listen. Like they're trying to find the right combination of actions or words that they can take to kind of superstitiously encourage God to listen to them. And Jesus is saying... That is absolutely not what, we are, what I'm after. I'm after a heart that, whose words that, that come out of that heart have meaning and depth and a reason for praying them, a reason for asking them. It's not just this incoherent babbling. It's not just, just run-on sentences of fancy words, kind of like I was talking about earlier. Like, when you're like, i got to make sure I work in as many King James-type words 
as I can into my prayer so that people feel like I know what I'm talking about. All it sounds like is white noise, is basically what he's saying. I just hear noise. One thing that Jesus isn't doing is he's not asking, he's not condemning the idea of praying for the same thing over and over. Because Jesus himself would pray for things over and over. On, on, on a couple of different occasions, the night before he was crucified, he went and he prayed and asked God, you know, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me, not my will, but yours. Take this cup from me, not my will, but yours. He prayed that same prayer over and over again, asking God, either change what you're going to do or, change, or, or make me okay with it, like, like give me the strength to endure. And he's asking that same question over and over again. So he's not saying, only pray one thing one time and then, and then just leave it up to God and walk away from it. Because, because if anything, the more often we pray for the same thing, we're not asking to change God, we're asking God to change us. Either to, to make us comfortable in the place that he has us or to build up perseverance or to build up you know, patience as we wait for him to answer the prayer. He's not saying... Don't pray the same thing over and over again. He's saying, don't think that the act of praying lots and lots of words repetitiously is what's going to convince God to move. God is going to move when he wants to move. And it's not the way that we pray or the words that we say that are going to make that happen. He's, again, still just after a heart that means the things that we are praying, the things that we are saying to him. So at this point, Jesus is going to say, he says, so, 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 so ignore, ignore the getting stuck in routine. Ignore the superstition. I'm going to show you what it is that God really wants you to pray, how he wants you to pray. And, and one thing to go ahead and realize before this, he's not saying, these are the words that I always want you to pray, right? Because he just kind of got done with saying, don't just pick words that sound good and just pray those thinking that those are the right words, Right? He's saying, I'm going to give you the concepts that I want you to pray about when you pray. When you approach God, these are the types of things that your heart should be after. These are the things that you should be seeking. Right? He's not saying, all right, so here's the script. If you stick to this word for word, then it's always going to happen. Though there are a couple of things in this prayer that he's going to say that if we pray for them, they will always happen. And we'll get there in just a sec. So the first thing that he's going to want us to do, and this is in verse 9, he wants you to refocus yourself on the sovereignty of God. Refocus on who God is. So when he says, hallowed be your name, it's the same thing. It's like, let your name be made holy. Let you, let you be set apart, higher, exalted. Let me realize that I am not like you. Let me realize that you are greater than I am. Like, like the first thing he's saying is don't, don't approach a conversation with the creator of the universe and think that you are on level terms. That you are the same. That you have all of this in common that, that you have all of these rights that haven't just been given to you because he gave them to you. So he's saying, when you pray, first, focus yourself on who it is that you are praying to. Do not lose sight of the fact that God is so much greater, so much higher, so much more powerful, and that, that ultimately, 
the reason you're praying to him is because you recognize that he is the one who is in control. He is the one who is making all of this happen. He's the one who is holding everything together. And you are approaching him as the weak created being saying, I know that only you can make something of this. So we're refocusing ourselves on God's authority, God's power, his sovereignty. And don't, and, and, and it's like, think about, we read this when we were reading Exodus on Sunday nights, which if you haven't been coming on Sunday nights to read with us, we're in numbers now, and I think we just got all the like lists of names out of the way, and I think it's about to really start picking up and getting really exciting. So you should come. But in Exodus, think about, think about when Israel first heard the law from God. They approached this mountain that God descended on in, in clouds and storms and wind and fire. Jesus says, when you pray, remember that that's the same God that you're talking to. He's still that God who is, is that awe-inspiring, that powerful, that mighty, that much to be feared. Like you're not just, it's not like you're just walking up and talking to some guy. You're talking to the creator of everything, the ultimate being in all of existence. So when we pray, we're to make much of God and hold him in high esteem. And we have to remember that it's not, our, it's not like we're letting God talk to us. When we pray, it's not like I'm going to initiate a conversation with God. He'd probably like to talk to me, and I'm going to let him talk to me today. That's not prayer. Prayer is creator of everything, mighty God looking and saying, I'm going to let you speak to me. And I think that's where Jesus' focus starts. Is Just focus on the idea of who it is that you're talking to. And don't take lightly the idea that you are speaking to this ultimate, all-powerful, sovereign being. So refocus yourself on the sovereignty of God. Beginning of verse 10, refocus on the big picture of God's plan. This is why I think it's so important that we continue to study all of Scripture and don't just lock in on some of these New Testament passages that are maybe easier to read, maybe easier to understand, maybe a little bit quicker to pick up on. But it's so important for us to understand the whole Old Testament, the law, the things the prophets said, the history of Israel and the, thing, and the context in which they lived, all of these things. It is important for us to understand that because the better we understand all of the history of God's interacting with the people that he created and the nation that he created and made to get, brought together, the better we understand that, the more accurately we're going to be able to pray for his will because we'll be able to understand what his will has been up to this point all along. We need to know how he has moved so that we can know what it is that he is continuing to do. Because in just a second, he's going to say, pray for his kingdom to come. What does that mean? Right? That's what we're, we're talking about. Your kingdom come. He's saying, I want you to understand what the idea of the kingdom of God is, what my intention for all of creation is, how it is that I am moving us through history, right? I want you to know that, that, that things were broken at the fall, were sinful, were wicked, and that I've been working out this plan to fix it. And I want you to know that, and I want you to pray that that would happen. Israel had been praying that throughout all of the Old Testament, and that they were praying for the Messiah to come. Please, send your Messiah. Please, send the Savior so that we can be made whole again. We, on this side, kind of the New Testament side of that, know that, that Christ already came. 
and he already fulfilled that. But now we know that we aren't quite to the point where everything is made perfect. Not everything has been put back together. And now we, in anticipation of that, are praying, Jesus, come back. We're ready for you. We want you here. We want to be with you. And so he's saying, understand what God's purpose is. The big picture of God's plan. Not just, where should I go eat lunch today? What should I do next weekend when I have a little bit of free time? And ask God about that. But say, God, so, so don't make it like, God, I want you to work it out so that I can eat some Amigos tonight. That would be great. Like, that's not the prayer. Instead, it's, God, I pray that you would come back and you would make all of this work again. Understand the big picture because, because we've just focused on how big God is. And then if we focus on how big his plan is, both of those things are going to kind of contribute to our recognizing where we fall in the structure of that. Like we are just a small piece. It doesn't revolve around us. Everything is focused on him and his glory and his working out his plan. So we've got to refocus on the sovereignty of God. We need to refocus on the big picture of God's plan, and then we need to refocus on the will of God. So we pray that his kingdom would come, and then we pray that his will would be done. I've said this before, but if you pray that God's will would happen, he will say yes to that prayer 100% of the time. So if if you want to know, I want to pray something that God will say yes to, just ask that he get his way, because he will. Right? So, so what are we really supposed to do when we're praying his will be done? Partially, we're asking him to kind of reveal his will to us. Like, like, we want your will to be done. What is my part in that? What is it that you would have me do in that? Maybe his will is something that we would be resistant to. Right? Like, I, like I made reference to Jesus um, not pray, praying to ask if there was another way other than crucifixion. And in Matthew 26, verse 39... It says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Right? So, so Jesus is modeling this. I am going to seek the will of God, and I want to obey the will of God. That is his prayer. He even said in John 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So what better way can we combat praying selfishly, which is what Jesus is fighting here? How, can we, how, how better a way to combat making it about ourselves than pray that somebody else would get their way? Then look to somebody else and say, I want you to get what you want. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, don't make it about me getting what I want, but instead, make me want what you want. That's the prayer that he's saying we need to be praying. Give us the same desires that you have. Give us the same heart that you have. Because when he changes our hearts to match his, then it is effortless to obey him. So we refocus on God's sovereignty, the big picture. We refocus on the will of God. Then, verse 11. Rely on God to sustain you. And I put in a little aside. Not cover you with abundance. So verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Okay, there are a couple of different ideas that I want to focus on here real quick. 
the language that he's using here, if you read, again, if you read Exodus with us, um, or if you're familiar with the story of Israel wandering through the desert for, for long periods of time, I don't know if you know this much about the desert, but there's not a whole lot of food. And as soon as they were starting to wander out in the desert, Israel's like, that's it. You know, God just brought us out here just to kill us in the desert. I don't really know why, but we're just going to die of starvation out here. That's obviously what God wanted. And God said to Moses, tell the people that I haven't brought them out here just so that they would die. I'm going to bring them out here, and then I'm going to feed them. I'm going to sustain them. And in the morning, every day, they would wake up, they'd walk out of their tent, and there would be this bread on the ground called manna. And the people were told, gather enough bread for you to eat that day. And, and everybody could go out, they could get enough for their family, and that would be all that they would need. They would have enough food to sustain them for that day. But he said very specifically, only take what you need for that day. If you took extra, if you tried to store up some extra in a little jar in your, in your tent so that you'd make sure, you know, just in case there wasn't enough tomorrow, you'd have some extra, it would, it would rot, it would go bad before you would wake up the next day. It would not last. It was only, it was only meant to last them for that day. And what Jesus is reminding them of is God sustained you every day with what you needed to get through that day. It wasn't about him giving them so much that they had more than they could need, but that he met their basic needs and that they were taught we can trust him. We can rely on him. He's going to get us through this. There's not going to come a day when we're going to just starve because God's going to you know, flake out on us and disappear. And not, and not meet the needs that we have. And so what Jesus is reminding the people to ask for is that we're supposed to ask God to provide for us what we need physically and spiritually. But again, just what we need. Like, like don't... All right, I'm going to use the story anyways. So, so there's a preacher in Texas who has a really big church, and he has a really smooth talking southern accent. And he writes lots of books that you may or may not have seen. And all of them have his face on them with his really big smile and his really big white teeth. He was preaching a sermon one day and he said, my mama always wanted a pool. I've told this story. Many of you have probably heard, you've probably heard this. This is one of my favorite examples of, of, a, of, a, of a hymn sermon. He said, my mama always wanted a pool. And so, and so one day... She started praying, God, I need a pool. God, I, I've always wanted a pool. Will you give me a pool? And that day she didn't get a pool. But she started praying. And then she asked, she asked his dad, will you pray? Let's, let's pray. We need a pool. I want a pool. I've always wanted a pool. So they started praying for a pool. And then, and then the preacher started praying, I would love for my mama to get a pool. And it wasn't ever going to happen. And, and I don't know how the story ends. I'm going to embellish it. And then I think one day, like, a truck with a pool just, like, showed up and broke down. And then it's like, oh, man, we dropped a pool in your yard. And he's like, you know why we have a pool? Because my mama prayed that we'd have a pool, and God gave us a pool because God wants us to have a pool. Now, I'm not saying because she ended up with a pool that God didn't want her to get a pool because I already talked about reminding ourselves about the sovereignty of God. There's some reason there's a pool involved. But what Jesus is saying is, don't pray about getting all these extra luxuries just kind of given to you. Like, like that kind of a prayer, that exact prayer, flies in the face of what Jesus is going after right here. He's saying, I don't want you praying, heap all of these riches on me, make me all... No. 
He's not saying, if you pray with enough faith that God's going to give you all of these blessings and it's going to be amazing. He's saying, he is going to give you enough to keep you going. And that's going to be a key theme through the rest of chapter 6. I've already started working ahead a little bit. I know, crazy, right? I've started working a little bit ahead looking at where we're going for the rest of the chapter. And this is the key theme, that God is going to take care of you with what you need. You don't need to worry. You can rely on him. So he's saying, when you pray, don't ask for all of these, you know, crazy things. Just, just be satisfied saying, God, let me trust that you're going to sustain me. You're going to keep me going. So rely on God to sustain you, not cover you with abundance. I'm going to go ahead and skip to verse 13 because I'm going to come back. Um, verse 13, understand the scope of the battle that we are waging when we pray, when we, when we exist in this broken world as people who have been saved by the grace of God, we are fighting a battle much bigger than just how am I going to get through today. There is a war that has been raging ever since Satan fell from heaven. Ever since we first sinned and we were broken, there has been a battle raging on. A war has been going on for all of this time. And, and we have constantly, as followers of God, as believers, been, been attacked and tempted and tested by the enemy. And what he's saying is, when you pray, recognize that, that you're not just fighting, it's not just that it's tough to live in a broken world, but you're in a broken world that is actively fighting against you. You will be tempted. There will be things placed in front of you trying to draw you away from God that will try to take your heart and pull it further and further away from Him. And you need to pray and ask God that He would sustain you not to give in to the temptations that the world is going to throw at you. Not to sit here and think, oh, I can beat this on my own. I can do this just with my own willpower. I can defeat this thing. That's not what He's saying. What He's saying is, you need to beg God to give you relief from the temptation to sin. You need to pray that he would give you victory in overcoming the temptation to give in to whatever that thing may be that the world is saying is worth more to you than God. Only God can give us victory over sin. Just like only God can give us a heart that would love Him and serve Him. Only He can help us to overcome the sin that has a hold of us. Okay, I'm going to go back to verse 12 and then I'm going to kind of group in verses 14 and 15 with this. When we pray, we're supposed to pray that we would forgive because we have been forgiven. Listen to this word that he uses in verse 12. And forgive our debts. So, when you think of debt, it's like this. For some people, okay, so like, when we bought this building, like, like all of the elders who, who were elders at the time, Caleb missed the cut by like a week or something like that on having to sign on this dotted line. I know. All of the elders who signed when we bought this building also own houses. And basically, you have to sign a little thing when you sign the paper that says, 
oh, and by the way, if the church can't afford to make this payment, we're coming after your house, essentially, is what they say. And it's, and it's like, not that we're afraid that we're not going to be able to afford the building because God put us here. So I'm not saying that at all. But I want, I want us to understand, when you sign to buy a house or when you sign to buy a car or when you, when you take out a loan to do something, it's not just like a, oh, that thing happened that one time and now it's no longer a thing that I have to focus on. It's no longer a thing that's going to really affect me. It's, it's a thing that is going to kind of hang over you for the life of the time that you have that loan, that debt. And God is, is compare, and Jesus here is comparing our sin not to just a mistake, a thing that we do one time that's kind of bad, and then we move on from it and it never affects us anymore. He's saying these are debts that are owed to God, debts that we can't repay. But, but when we sin, when we do something that is offensive to God, what he's saying is, this is not the sort of thing that just goes away. It's the sort of thing that hangs over you. So when you're told by God, I love you, I'm going to make something of you, I'm going to forgive all of these things that you've done, he is literally taking the weight of a huge debt off of your shoulders and saying, you don't have to worry about this anymore, I'm taking this on myself. I'm going to keep this debt now. Let's go, this is mine. You don't have to freak out anymore. And if you understand the weight that has been lifted off of you when you are saved, when you are forgiven, he's saying, when you understand grace, when you understand what it is that God offered to you, that ought to change the way that you think about what other people have done to you. There should be no situation that you should face where you walk up and somebody has sinned against you and you're like, I'm not going to forgive that. They've done something so bad that I'm not going to let that go. He's saying, if you understand what you have already been forgiven of because of what Christ did for you, then you will be a person who forgives in that same way across the board. Because he says, and he says later on in verses 14 and 15, uh, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What he's not saying there is, you have to, be, you have to forgive somebody to earn God's forgiveness. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's because you have been forgiven, because you actually understand grace, because you understand what God took off of you. You can forgive others because you want to show that same love, that same grace to someone else. Because, because you know grace, you know love, you know what they really look like because God has, done, has shown that to you. And so we as believers, we as the church, ought to be known as the kind of people who do not hold grudges, who don't hold things against people, who don't, who don't have somebody do something evil against us, and we, we say, you have to do X, Y, and Z, or I won't let this go. You have to pay this back. The idea of forgiving a debt. I, I remember when we got married that like, I could have probably had a really nice wedding present from my parents, but... I kind of botched that when I like didn't pay them for my cell phone bill or my car insurance for like when I didn't pay for my cell phone bill or my car insurance while I was growing up. And so I remember mom saying, so 
So either you can like pay us for all these things that you should have been paying us for all along, and then we can get you a present, or we can just let that go as your present. And that was my wedding present, so sorry we didn't get a blender. <laughs> they didn't send loan sharks after us. Lesson learned. But that's the kind of thing that God does for us on a much grander scale. He takes what we, what we have done against him that is so offensive that, that we ought to repay, but there is no way to repay. And he says, that's cool. I got this. I'm going to take... Because, because it's not like it didn't still... like for, In that example, like it's not like they said, we're going to forgive that, and then nobody had to pay for anything. Like they said, we're just going to pay for all that now. Like that's now an expense that we're going to cover on your behalf. That's what he's saying. Because you have felt that weight lifted off of your shoulders, you instead are able, ought to be able to do that. And we do that because we know true grace. We know true forgiveness. So I kind of like subtly avoided pointing this out at the very beginning because I really wanted to end here. Um, let's go back to when he, at the very beginning. So I'm going to pick up in verse... I'm just going to start at verse 5, and I'm going to read for a sec. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who, who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will, re will reward you. And then when he starts the prayer, he says, pray then like this in verse 9. Our Father in heaven. I think the most amazing thing about what Jesus is telling us here is that you should talk to God like he's your dad. Like, like, yeah, we talked about separating him and how big and powerful and mighty and sovereign he is. But you should feel like when you're talking to him that you are talking to your dad. Like the word that he used there, you could literally translate to the word daddy, which is like what Ellie calls me. And it bugs Tiff when she doesn't call me daddy. Like if she just says, hey, dad. She's like, you call him daddy. I don't know, but I'm going to call him dad right now. It's like, but that's less cute. But I'm going to call him dad right now. Sometimes she calls me Tanner. Now that gets to me. <laughs> but this idea that we can approach God and say, hey, dad, I need to talk to you about some stuff. He's saying, by virtue of being, like I talked about this idea of us being made sons and daughters of God. Like, like, it's not this like formal relationship where now we still have this. So he's like, call me dad. Come talk to me. Treat me just like I am your dad. It's less formal than just the word father. It's like a kid running up to their dad just to chat about some fun thing they got to do at preschool that day. Some science project that they got to do and they're really excited about. Or this idea, or like, or like you fell and skinned your knee and you want your dad to give your boo-boo a kiss. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, you can come and talk to him like he's your dad, like he loves you, because he does. Many of us, I'm going to get sappy, I'm going to get sappy. Many of us uh, have really good relationships with our dad, right? I like to give my dad a hard time, a lot. We came up with this fun phrase, oh, he popsied. 
like when he does something that we like to make fun of. But, but if you know my dad, you know that he loves this church and he loves people and he wants us to be more like Christ. Not all of us get that kind of relationship with a dad. For some of us, when it's like, I bring up this idea of you get a dad. It's like, it's like your dad. Think of your dad. Some of you might think of your dad and be like, I don't want to think of my dad. I don't like my dad. I had a horrible, horrible relationship with my dad. And the thinking of the idea of a father is just terrifying to me or sad or traumatic. There's something about it that just makes me feel gross. I don't want to think of dad, of, of, of God as a dad, because if I think of God as a dad, then I'm going to have all of these these past problems brought up, and I don't want to feel the way that I felt when I was around my dad. Some of you may feel that way, but for, but for those of you, let me assure you that if you didn't have a loving dad, if you don't have a dad that you are close to, or if, or if that feels gross to you, you actually have a father who loves you. You have a father who has fought for you. And you have a father who, who is seeking your good. And though you may not think it's possible to have that kind of relationship with your earthly father, you have a heavenly father who loves you very much and is willing to take whatever pain you may have in your life brought on by some family member, brought on by some friend, brought on by some life situation, and he's going to take that on himself. And he's going to bear the weight of that. He's going to take the pain of that for you because he loves you and because he wants you to walk up to him and say, hey, dad, I skinned my knee. Will you take a look at it? Hey, dad, I did this really cool thing and I wanted to tell somebody about it. What do you think? Hey, dad, hey, dad. So like, I was talking to Tim about this a couple weeks ago or something like that. When I first heard this song, I didn't get it. Like, I didn't fully understand I don't know. I didn't connect with it. It's, it's the song, you've probably, many of you have probably heard it because once a song is good, Chris Tomlin takes it and then he makes it really famous. So I asked, I asked Nick if we could sing Good, Good Father because, because he said, in the chorus it says, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. Like, that's who he is. He is a good, good father. And then it says, and I'm loved by you. And this is the part, like, I never understood. Why is he saying it's who I am? It's who, because, and then it hit me when I was reading this this week. It's like, that's the whole point. It's that it doesn't matter what my relationship with any person has been. All I need to know is that I am loved by God. I am loved by my Father. It's who I am. It's who I am. And so we're going to sing that in just a second. And, and, and I don't know where you are. I don't know what your relationship with with your father is. I don't know what your relationship is with the world right now. I don't know if you feel alone. I don't know if you're worried that you're not going to make it through today. But one of the things that I want us to focus on is that we have a God who loves us and treats us like a dad and that we can run to him in whatever time of pain or stress or trouble we have and he loves us. And we are defined not by the situation that we find ourselves here in this world, not by whatever loneliness or pain or struggle we're going through, but we are defined by the fact that we have a God who says, I love you, I am for you, I am going to fight for you. So let's pray.